Think about heroes, the people that you wanted to be, especially when you were growing up. Now, some of you, your heroes were your mom. After all, she gave birth to you, right? And she fed you and clothed you. Maybe some of you, it was your dad. You just have great memories of working on a car or playing sports or whatever with your dad. Maybe it's an uncle who led you to the Lord. Maybe it's police officers. Growing up, you just wanted to be a police officer or someone in the military or firefighter. We have lots of different heroes. When, when we think about those heroes, though, those are, I hate to say it, but they're more of the generic heroes, right? Someone that we all have, a mom, dad, or someone like that in our life that not everyone else knows about, but there are heroes. What about the, the legendary heroes? Who are those in your life? Who are the legendary heroes, maybe like the, the Greek and Roman divine hero, Hercules, that you're like, man, I just I want to be like that person. Maybe if you liked history, maybe it was like an Alexander the Great type person, or, or maybe if, if you liked fashion, it was someone like that. Me, I, I, didn't, I didn't like fashion. I liked history. I looked up to people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, very good leaders and wanted to be like them. But there was one commercial when I was younger that pretty much epitomizes uh, what it's like to, to think about your heroes. It was a Gatorade commercial. You guys remember this? Some of you who are old enough will. Michael Jordan's the star of it. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. And you see Michael Jordan, and he's playing with kids, and then it goes to a highlight of him dunking the ball. And then you have these, these kids who can't even jump, trying to like, you know, dunk the ball. And it made you want to drink Gatorade because it's like, man, if I drink Gatorade, I'm like Michael Jordan, the best basketball player in the world. But something about Michael Jordan is... Um, it's not relayed in the Gatorade commercial because obviously they want to sell their Gatorade. But Michael Jordan isn't the nicest guy in the world. He's not a great example. Do a quick Google search and you will find many ways in which Michael Jordan has been a jerk to people. I'm still a fan of his basketball, but not him completely as a person. And you know what? It doesn't matter if your heroes were the Abraham Lincolns or George Washingtons or your mom or dad or uncle or whoever else. Not a single one of our heroes in this life is perfect. They all fail. We really see that right now in our cancel culture, right? All these elementary schools are named after different historical figures. And what we're finding is all those different historical figures have done something that's not good at some point in their life. And so they replace those figures with other people. And guess what? Those people have not lived perfect lives either. The Bible tells us that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yesterday when I was asking my kids, this is becoming a regular habit at our, our household. I, I deliver the sermon to my kids. Um, I asked Hezekiah and the girls, who's your hero? And Hezekiah smiled, and he said, God. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, our hero 
is the only person who has ever lived a perfect life on this earth, Jesus. And today, Paul literally holds up Jesus in this text and says, here he is. This is one of the greatest texts in all of the Bible, and I apologize that it's come so late, but you know the whole COVID thing several weeks ago threw off the preaching schedule, and I had told Eddie that he was preaching over that text that he did a great job last week of preaching. Um, I didn't want to give him the Jesus text because really, quite frankly, I wanted to preach it. So, <laughs> um, so that's why I know it's a little bit awkward. We're going back um, backwards a little bit, but we're going to be in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And let's look at the greatest hero, the only hero of them all, Jesus. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is God's word, and that is really, really good stuff. We have to remember where we're at in the book of Philippians, especially since uh, kind of jerking you guys around. So we were <laughs> we're, uh, further on in chapter two last week. We're coming back to this reason, uh, for this reason. This text is something you can't skip over. It's so pivotal for who we are as Christians. If you remember several weeks ago, we talked about Philippians 1.27. That's the first command in Philippians, and that command is this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the Philippians and us as believers have a command to let our lives together be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then later on in verse 27, it says that we are to be of one spirit with one mind striving side by side. Paul goes on, he writes a little bit more, and then he repeats really what he's talking about in verse 27 again uh, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. So he says, uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and of course there was, we talked about that two weeks ago, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of, oh, here's that, almost same phrase, same mind, same love, full, um, being in full accord and of one mind. And, and then he gives this command. He says, do, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so that's one sentence in the Greek. It goes into verse 5. So Paul starts verse 5 after giving the command for the people in Philippi to live lives worthy of the gospel and be united together. Now he says, you're to be humble. And let me give you a great example, Jesus. And so the big idea this morning is, is a bigger idea. I don't usually use this many words, but it's important to understand that because of Jesus, you can be humble, be united, and live worthily of the gospel for God's glory. Now, I know that's a mouthful, and so some of you are like, man, that's, that's a lot to write down. I'm trying to write it down. 
The, sim- the simple form of the big idea this morning, almost a little bit too simplistic, is be like Jesus. Now we have to be leery of this text in verse 5 through 11 because there's been a lot of people who have approached 5 through 11 and um, take verses out of context and then they come up with heresy. That's not a good thing, right? And we don't want that. And oftentimes you don't get heresy from trying to take simple things and making them complicated. You take complicated things and you try to make them too simple and you get heresy. Things that aren't true. We want to preach the truth of God's word here, right? That's my heart's desire, especially as I have to stand before God one day and give an account for how I preached. (laughs) And any of you who teach, you have to do the same thing. And so as we go through verses 5 through 11, we are going to have to get out our thinking caps. Uh, This is a text that is a little more complicated. We're going to have to think through it. But I think you're up to the task. So... Because of Jesus, you can be humble, be united, and live worthily for the gospel, for God's glory. We look at verses 5, and we're going to see really who Jesus is and what he did. All right? So Paul starts off, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We see that Jesus is the foundation for our faith. He also is the example of our faith. He's an example of how we are called to live. We're called to be like Jesus and live like Jesus. But very practically, we aren't Jesus. None of us are the Son of God. We don't hold uh, divine authority. And so our humility is limited in that. But it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to live like Christ. We definitely are supposed to. Friends, this is vitally important. Um because Jesus is the foundation, you have to know Jesus to be able to be like Jesus. Uh, You have no Christian life if you have no relationship with Christ. And so apart from knowing Christ himself, uh, you can hold up Jesus as an example of humility. You will fall very, very short of that. What is this humility of Christ? This is the humility of That who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's hold on. Verse 6. What does that mean? I just read it. Who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We have to know Jesus, okay? I need to know Jesus. And so what about Jesus? Who is he and what did he do? Well, the very first thing that Paul tells us is that being in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus isn't God? Because it says form. And I can take Play-Doh and make a form out of it, right? Like a dog or a snake. I'm, I'm more like the snake, right? Those are easy. But it doesn't make it a snake. It doesn't make it a dog. So is Jesus not really God, just the form of God? That's not what this is saying. The Greek text here uses the word morphe, right? And those of you who might have grown up in the late 80s, early 90s, they're Power Rangers, they morphed together, right? Uh, and I dated myself a little bit there. I, I wasn't allowed to watch it. But anyway, um, you, you morphed together. 
That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's not like Jesus was a man and then morphed to God. What this text is saying is that Jesus is God. Jesus has always been God. This context is that he is the very essence of God. But even though he's the very essence of God, Jesus, in his earthly ministry and even his heavenly ministry, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now hold on. If you are saying that Jesus is God, why does he not think equality with God is a thing to be grasped, to be had? It's so different from us because you and I, we want to be equal with people, especially if we're powerful, right? And as humans, when people are equal with one another, it just, there's all these problems all the time, right? We see this when, when there's co-CEOs of a company. This guy wants to go this way, this guy wants to go that way. Uh, we, we see it when there, there's co-head coaches, co-pastors, co It's kind of hard sometimes. Why? Because as human beings, we're prideful. We want to exert our authority our way. But Jesus, the universal God, the creator of all things, he's not like that. He shows humility. So then you say, well, is he really God? He is. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is Jesus as the Word. John 17.5, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. One of my favorite texts of Jesus being God is found in John 8.58. There, there's a bunch of Pharisees who, who come up to Jesus and, and some other leaders and they question Jesus. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham went all the way back. He was the patriarch of Israel. He goes before Moses. And Jesus says, even before that, I eternally existed. He also connects himself saying, I am, by saying, I'm I'm the Lord. Because you remember later on, Moses, he saw a burning bush and he's down on the ground in the sand and and he says, okay, you're sending me to Egypt. Who's sending me? What's your name? And the burning bush answered, I am who I am. Jesus told those Jews in John 8, 58 that, He has eternally existed. He's 100% God. That's something that we hold true. You see, Jesus is 100% God. We see this in verse 6. We see it throughout the rest of the New Testament, that he has eternal being, that he promises in Matthew, and you can have those references up there, that he is present where two or three are gathered in his name. Jesus is with them. I can't do that as a man but Jesus can do that as God. He's also all-knowing and all-powerful. Jesus did things that you and I just cannot do. Why? Because he's God. 
One of those things is his work in Mark 2, 1 through 12. Mark 2, 1 through 12 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Jesus is teaching in a house, and it's so packed, so loaded, no one can get in there. And there's these four friends who say, we have this guy, and he's paralyzed, and Jesus is in town, and we want him to be healed. And so what they do is they go on the roof, and they, lay, they lower the man right in front of Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't heal him right away. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus knew the hearts of the people around him, and the people knew only God can forgive sins. And so they, they, before they even can say anything like blasphemy, Jesus says, what's harder for me to do? To say, son, your sins are forgiven? Or so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, to tell this man to get up, pick up, and go. And Jesus heals the man the man who could not walk in a time and day in which they did not have modern medicine. Jesus showed the authority that he had as God to forgive sins. Jesus also walks in water. Uh, Jesus also, he rises from the dead. There's there's more information up there about Jesus being 100% God. But the greatest example of that is that Jesus called himself the son of God and then he rises from the dead. You and I, if we die, we get buried in the ground. We, we have no hope of rising from the dead apart from Jesus. But Jesus is God, and death could not contain him. See, Jesus is equal with God. But what he does here is he provides an example of humility. Jesus provides an example of submission. We think submission is a dirty word. Our society tells us that. Look at verse 7 of Philippians 2. So he doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus is God. He's 100% God. But what he does is he humbles himself. He submits himself to God the Father. What does that mean? Well, some of your versions is going to say he emptied himself. And so there's some people who wrongly teach that Jesus got rid of all of his divine attributes, that Jesus stopped being God when he was on earth, and that is not true. I love how the ESV renders it. It says, but made himself nothing. You see, the eternal God who sat on his throne forever and ever and ever, where angels were bowing down to him, the eternal God who had planets dripping from his fingertips because he is the creator God, guess what he does? He submits himself to the Father and subjects himself to humanity. That Jesus was a baby in his mom's belly. That that Jesus was born and pooped his pants. And you're like, oh, that's funny. But like, the God of the universe? The God of the universe would subject himself to being a baby? He did. The God of the universe would subject himself to being sick, to stubbing his toe? Right, like we get the idea, okay, Jesus had to die on the cross for us, but why did Jesus have to go through an actual life here on earth? Like stubbing your toe is just awful. Like, why would God ever go through that pain? He's subjecting himself 
submitting himself to the Father, doing the Father's will for the Father's glory. And he doesn't stop becoming God. He's always God. See, this Greek word here, where some translate emptied or others say made himself nothing, is the Greek word kenosis. Well, it comes from the Greek word kenosis. And some people say the kenosis is Jesus stopped being God while he was on earth, and that's just simply not the case. He never subtracted anything from his divine being, but what Jesus does do is he adds 100% man. He submits himself. You say, well, that doesn't seem like that's what Paul is saying here. The Apostle Paul wrote Colossians. He wrote Colossians 2.9, and he says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity. Jesus never stopped being God. So what is Paul saying here in verse 7? Well, what he's saying is this, that Jesus is submitting himself. Paul also wrote Romans 8.3, and he says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Or as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Or even in Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. The eternal, universal God, as Hebrews 1.3 says, he's the exact imprint of God. He has the exact nature of God. He is God and has been eternally worshipped. He submits himself to the Father. And he submits himself to taking on human form. Again, he became That's the same word. He became completely man. So Jesus is not only 100% God, but he's 100% man. We see this because in Matthew 4.2, Jesus says he was hungry. You all get hungry in here, right? But God doesn't get hungry. Because what the Bible tells us in Psalm 50, 12 through 13, that he's all-sufficient. We know that scripture tells us a cattle on a thousand hills are his. And if he ever grew hungry, he wouldn't tell us. He would just eat. But God doesn't grow hungry. We also know that Jesus grew thirsty. And he grew weary. Jesus was around 30 years old while he was with the disciples. I'm around 30 years old. And you know what? I grow tired. And I really truly believe that the disciples were teenagers because they're always hungry and Jesus is going up and down these mountains, traveling in, um, in Palestine. And in John chapter 4, he sits down. The disciples, oh, we're so hungry. We're going to go in this town and get food. Jesus says, I'm tired. You go ahead. That's so human, right? Jesus is 100% man. In fact, the name that he uses for himself more than any other is the Son of Man. Over 80 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as son of man. And in Luke 2.52, you know when Jesus got lost, right? His parents left him. 
It's, it's their Kmart story. I guess we don't even have Kmarts anymore, but it's, it's their like Walmart story, right, where your parents, your parents never left you. Okay, well, that's my childhood. <laughs> my parents left me one time. They quickly returned, but that was a little scary. Um, you know, that Jesus was left behind, but in Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, just like the kids in our congregation grow in wisdom and stature. Jesus is 100% man, and ultimately, he shed his blood on the cross. God, as spirit, does not have blood, but Jesus, as 100% man, had blood. And you say, Chase, how does that even operate? How does that work that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and you put it together, is he 200%? Like, well, how does that work? That's really hard. It's really hard to understand that. We know that it's true. We, we take it by faith. And it's hard for us to understand because none of us are like Jesus. But Jesus um, is 100% man, 100% God. And so when Paul is telling us we have this example of Jesus, he is looking to this 100% God submitting himself, God of the universe submitting himself. That's, that goes extra, right, than just a man being humble. But he's also saying, you too, in the example of Christ, can be humble because Jesus was a man. It's like, man, that's, that's hard. Well, we're going to put it in the context here. So he has this example, and what does he do? This is who Jesus is. He's born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' mission was to submit to the Father and go to the cross, to die on the cross, to glorify God, and to redeem mankind. Jesus is the only person who could do that. And it's very humble for Jesus to be obedient, but even more so to be obedient all the way to the point of death. Kids, have your parents ever asked you to be obedient to the point of death? I don't think so. But Jesus' Father in heaven asked him to do that. Jesus shows great humility all the way to the cross. And the cross was a despicable thing for Jews in their law in Deuteronomy 21-23, it said, a hanged body is cursed by God. For Jesus to go and, and be hung on a cross, that was a terrible thing, a vile thing. But Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I? Well, I'll tell you this much. You and I have a long way to go to be as humble as Jesus. But he starts us off because of the cross. You see, it's at the foot of the cross where we look up and we see 100% God, 100% man as the perfect sacrifice who's able to redeem us out of our sinful pride and to put us right there at his, at his feet. And at the feet of Jesus, the ground is even. What do I mean by that? Well, if you, if you look back at Philippians 127, 
Paul's giving this command, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, and he tells them to be united, right? And then he repeats it again in chapter 2, and he says, you know, have the same love and have the same mind and be of one accord. Humility is really hard, especially when you think you're better than other people. Humility is really, really hard when, when you're thinking, they're okay. I'm a little bit better. They don't have their act together. I have my act together a little bit more. And friends, that's not how we live as Jesus' people. Because our example is our hero, Jesus, who was equal with God. But he didn't say, God the Father, you go and die for everyone. He submits. And he goes on the cross, and he offers this opportunity for us to, to, to know God because of what he did. And he didn't, look, he didn't look at you out there, me, and say, man, they're just wicked and sinners and I don't want to die for them. And so how dare we, when we go out with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, or anyone in this room, and we look at them and we think, hmm, they don't have their act together. I'm a little bit better than them. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Look at this. We can be united. We can come together. We can look out for the interests of others because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus, if he's God and he can submit to his Father, guess what? You and I, we can submit to one another. We can love one another. We can look out for the interest of others beyond looking out for just our own interest. And we see because of what Jesus did in verse 9, there's a therefore. So this is what God does. This, we were talking about what Jesus did. Now this is what God the Father does. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is really good news. This is actually a song that the early Christians sang. They were reminded of who Jesus is, what he did, and now because of what Jesus did, what God is doing for Christ. They were all about magnifying who Jesus was. And they say this, that God the Father is going to lift Jesus up above all people. And they, that God the Father will give Jesus the name that is above every name. And you say, is that Jesus? Well, the text would actually show us that it's Lord that Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the Savior of all. It's that connection to the Old Testament that I told you about. Right when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And I told you that it connected to the burning bush with Moses. And Moses said, who's sending me to Egypt to rescue God's people? And he says, I am who I am. Jesus is Lord. And one day, every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what it says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every angel in heaven, every celestial being will one day submit and bow their knees to Lord King Jesus. And one day, every single person on earth, no matter how vile, no matter how far they've run from God, every tribe, tongue, and nation, every single person who's ever lived will bow their knees to King Jesus and confess him as Lord. And then it says, under the earth, every demon who has rebelled against God is one day going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is supreme. 
And it's this Jesus who humbles himself. It's this Jesus that is not just our hero, the foundation of our faith. You want to live a life worthy of the gospel? Look to Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Well, our text today, 5 through 11, it really is a lot of information, right? There's a lot of context that's, that's just going in there. And, and really smart theologians have struggled with, how does Jesus, you know, become 200% and, you know, he's 100% God, 100% man? How does that all work? Really smart theologians have looked into that for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And Paul is saying a theological statement. I'm not against theology. I have too many theology books in my office. But what Paul is getting at here is this. 127 through 2, 1 through 4, and then 12, verse 12, all the way through 18. This is here for us to look to Jesus to be different, to think differently, to act differently, to love our neighbors differently, to love our church differently. And so we see because of the lowliness of Christ, because he submitted to God the Father, that we are called to live lives of worship, submitted to the glory of God. Even Jesus, who is God, does everything for the glory of God. And even God the Father, when he exalts Jesus above all people, is doing that for his glory. That's what verse 11 tells us. And so our manner of life is to be lived for the glory of God. And how often do you think about that when you get up? You, you know, you, you get up in the morning and get your shower, get ready, go downstairs, eat your Wheaties, drink your coffee. Do you think like, the glory of God today? No. We're very consumed with our own hearts and our own lives. And we're thinking, man, I have to do this and this. And oh, I can't believe I have to talk to that person. Oh my goodness, I have this, this appointment. I'm late for it. I got to go. And we just go through life and we're just busy and we talk with people. But right now, this Sunday morning, we can stop right now and we can say, why do we live? How are we to live? And friends, how we are to live is walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, which is bringing glory to God the Father. That's why you're here on earth. That changes our relationships. Because if we're seeking out the Lord... What's going to happen is verse 4 of chapter 2 says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And if we're living submissive lives to God the Father, we're going to be looking out. And what this text is actually calling for us is calling for us to build relationships. Not surfacey ones but real, intentional, out of our way, getting to know people in the depths of their soul and heart. Why? Because that's the only way that you're ever going to know the needs and the interests of others if you go to them and know them. And that's hard, because guess what? Nobody loves Chase Ringler like Chase Ringler. Nobody loves you like you. And then God asks us to go, no, 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 we're not gonna look at our hearts. Because look at what Jesus did. Jesus isn't saying, oh, this isn't best for Jesus. 
So I'm not going to sign this contract, Father, right? I'm not going to die on the cross. I'm not going to go to earth and subject myself to stubbed toes. You go ahead and do that. I'm not doing that. No, no, no. Jesus submits himself. And like Jesus submits himself, we say, Lord, I'm living a life for you. How do I live for you? You seek out people. You get to know them, and you know their needs, and you know their interests. And then that's what allows us to live out verse 4. That's what allows us then to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Eddie preached on this last Sunday. But just a few verses later, we actually see verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That you and I exist on this earth for the glory of God. And because of Jesus, you and I, what can we do? We talked about this two weeks ago. We talked about it before that. We can live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. We can be of one mind as the church. We can go together loving one another, united with one another. Even when people aren't like us, they don't think like us, they don't look like us. Why? Because there's even footing at the cross. God has given them grace, and we're called to extend that grace as well. So friends, this text I could spend another hour talking about. I'm not going to. But I want you to see what brought Paul joy. Because intentionally so, the last several weeks, I have not said this about verse uh, 27 in chapter 1. So Paul says, let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then, and then I, I have, you know, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But, but right in there, right in the middle of that, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm. And then he goes on and he says, so by hearing that, and not frightening anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them and the destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Okay, and he's going on. And so then he repeats it again and he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and this is what I haven't really keyed in on. He says, complete my joy. As we individually look to Jesus and live for Jesus, collectively, we become united like a chain. You know what Paul said? That would complete his joy. Friends, how can we really, I'm not saying surfacy, I'm saying really intentionally love one another here at our church? How can we get into each other's lives, submit to one another, love one another, look out for the interest of one another? The only way that we can do that, the only way we can be a gospel church at a Boyd Baptist church is by looking to Jesus. Jesus.